and welcome to another episode of Lie, Cheat, and Steal, a bi-monthly podcast about liars, frauds, thieves, and bullshitters. My name is Pat Royce. You can also find us on Twitter at LCS Podcast and on TikTok at Lie, Cheat, Steal Podcast. If you like what you hear, please leave us a five-star review wherever you're listening to this, or you can subscribe to our Patreon, where we release two more episodes every month. That's at patreon.com slash lie, cheat, and steal. And as always, I'm here with my co-host, Kath Barbadoro. Kath, how you doing? Hi, Pat. Um, I'm good. It's a beautiful day outside. I'm excited. I'm at work recording this. I stayed late in my office. I'm going to ride my bike home after this. We just did a whole episode about ghost kitchens, and now I'm thinking about food, and I'm figuring out what I'm going to eat for dinner. (laughs) Very exciting. (laughs) Yeah, I was thinking about that fried chicken you were talking about, the chicken place. Oh, yeah. Honestly, Pecking House (laughs) is on my way home. I might stop at Pecking House. It's kind of expensive, though. That's a problem. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's worth it, but it's like worth it for a treat. You know, it's not worth it for like like an everyday occurrence. But uh, yeah, man. Listen to our Patreon. Subscribe to our Patreon to hear about... uh, the evils of ghost kitchens and also some really good fried chicken they make in Brooklyn. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You get all the info, yeah, all the great places to eat and the great scams to avoid <laughs> over there on the uh, Patreon. Yeah, we went and got raisin canes today. Nice. Uh, you know, a little, a little pedestrian, but we've been I've been cooking a lot lately, like in the house. What have you and made? My body lately? was just so I made. Uh, I've been making a lot of uh, a lot of fun stuff because I've been cooking a bunch. But I made like I always do stuff that's like more like. I guess you could say the spices and shit I use is more southern or like Mexican mm-hmm. flavors. But I actually made some like pasta the other day. Not made pasta, mm-hmm. but I yeah I got some like Italian sausage and I made my own little sauce guy where I use like the tomato paste and some water nice. and just like yeah I cut up carrots and did all that. I've never really Italian flavors isn't something I've ever really messed with. It's always been like southern barbecue seasoning and like sure. you know Mexican flavors and like chipotle and shit like that. Uh, oh, I made a yogurt marinade the other day. That was Ooh, really good. That for, what'd yeah. you marinate in it? Chicken? Uh, it was so, uh, yeah, it was chicken thighs, and I, I did them uh, in the yogurt marinade. And I had chipotle in there, like like nice. fresh chipotle peppers. Yeah. And boy, that went hard. That's real. That's, uh, that, uh, I'm, I'm gonna do that again. Yeah, yogurt, buttermilk, like anything with that like lactic acid in it. Really yeah. good, really really good marinade. Yeah. Yeah. Delicious. I left it in. The, yeah, I left it in there overnight. That was cool. Um, Sid's mom like like emptied out her freezer to us the other day she was just like hey i got all this meat we were like yeah we'll take that oh, yeah. and so uh there was like a lot of like flank steak kind of deals you know mm-hmm. which are the, are the best things and i made like uh a little like off the cuff pot roast just to like put other things in there wrapped it up in tin foil with potatoes carrots nice. uh and onions and celery a little couple pads of butter threw it in there for like an hour and 45 minutes and like boy that was delicious God so damn. we gotta stop talking about food i'm so hungry yeah, right? what are we doing man <laughs> yeah well we um Let's see. Uh, speaking, okay, so speaking of, of food okay. and delicious food, a, uh, a food that we all enjoy uh, comes from a country that plays a very uh, central role in today's story. Okay. Uh, and it kind of factors in in a large scale and like a big picture kind of thing. Interesting. It factors into... Uh, into our, our story. Uh, so cocoa, right? we all like cocoa, we all sure. like chocolate. Uh, a lot of it, yeah, delicious stuff. A lot of it comes from the uh, West African country of Ghana. Okay. And so, yeah, uh, today we're going to be talking about a guy who, I, I think the only thing that keeps him out of good guy club material is that like, a couple regular people got hurt by a scam. Mm. But even then, he got so many, He we're talking about that dude, a, a slept on a guy I'd never heard of. And this, is the, this dude should get way more exposure. Uh, there's a book out that I'll reference here in a little bit that's out now that I think you should go check out. That's what kind of shed light on this guy. We're talking about 
His name is John Aka Blaymiza. Okay. And uh, yeah, Blaymiza. It's a hyphenated last name. Never kind of heard. Deal. Never heard of him. I'm excited for you yeah, to tell so, me about him. Yeah, John. John Aka is a. He's a. Uh, depending on who you ask, uh, he is a custodian to the wealth that was scrolled away in a Swiss bank. It was the entire wealth of Ghana, about $30 billion, put into a Swiss bank by their ex-president. Mm-hmm. And on that ex-president's deathbed, he told John Aka Blamaze that there's the money, you're the sole trustee, and it turns out... You're the sole trustee news. of Ghana now. That's Yeah, 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 yeah. you own Ghana. That is uh, but what the, being the president <laughs> is, right? Is you just have the bank account of the country. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. When you get elected president, they give you the debit card. Right. <laughs> the country's debit card, yeah. Oh, man, so... There's one yeah, account so he, who's uh, always trying to get you to submit your receipts, but you have the credit yeah. card. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> uh, damn. Yeah. Sometimes, like, the co- the country goes out for a trip and then you leave the debit card back at the embassy and you're like, damn it. I don't know, guys. Yeah. Somebody Venmo me. I'll get you back. <laughs> um, but yeah. So he, he was basically told that he was the sole trustee of this bank account with about $30 billion in it. Um, the only thing is, long protracted legal battle to get the notorious, notoriously untrustworthy Swiss banks to give him this money. And to fight that battle, he needs your help. He mm. needs you to, to invest in him. Uh, and he. Throughout the, the Philadelphia area in the 1970s, he racked up some numbers. So, yeah, we're just gonna, and this guy's a larger-than-life character. He's in the vein of the fake chic. Uh, he's in the vein of, like, um, who's that guy? Uh, the guy from Mali that, uh, that defrauded the, Emir- the Emirati Bank. Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. just vi- larger-than-life character. So let's just, let's just hop to it. So John Akablemaiza was a Ghanaian-born, Philadelphia-based con man who orchestrated an elaborate and hugely profitable investment scam in 1970s Philadelphia. While the scam started local, it soon went worldwide, pulling in, it's an estimated, they don't really know how much, but it's between 100 to $300 million. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, it's like, it's a heavy hitter. This guy's, yeah. Yeah, yeah, this guy ain't fucking around. Um, in many ways, his scam serves as the prototype for the infamous Nigerian prince email scams in the early days of the internet. If you're not familiar with those... That scam featured, uh, it was a supposed deposed member of the Nigerian royal family pleading for help via mass email to be rightfully installed back on the throne. Investigators who helped him finance his legal battle for reinstatement would be rewarded tenfold, twentyfold, once he was back in power. This scam, like many other international frauds, plays upon the ignorance of Westerners and the general global indifference to the affairs of the African continent. Mm. Um, the, the Nigerian monarchy, which is funny, so I looked it up. There was a Nigerian monarchy for about three years. <laughs> it was uh, after the 60s when they declared, when they uh, separated from Great Britain. And before that, technically the king of Nigeria was Queen Elizabeth II. <laughs> so like, that was, yeah, so there's, if you're, if you're currently talking to a Nigerian prince or a Nigerian former king, Cut it off. They they never actually existed yeah. in the modern world. Yeah, so yeah. yeah, Nigeria. By the time the email scam went around, Nigeria had been democratically ruled for four decades. Uh, so like, yeah, people, but that's know, the thing is, he was. He, they would say they were like deposed. You know, like, yeah, 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 yeah. They would say like, oh, you know, we, I'm, I'm a distant relative of the royal family or whatever. I yeah. feel like it definitely does rely. It does play on the ignorance of of the Western world of what's going on in Africa. I feel like it's also an interesting. The Nigerian prince scam, which this guy sounds like he was doing too, it's an interesting play on like a, an investment scam where like often people will the the scam will be that you'll be investing in some business plan and yeah. then the idea is that like you know you're you're gonna get your money back tenfold because this is such a great idea. But th- the Nigerian prince thing and what this guy did is it's like 
the guy himself is the investment, you know? It's like, yeah. I have access to all this money. I just can't get it right now. So yeah, you're yeah. giving me like a bridge loan that I'm then paying several hundred percent interest on. And that's how you get your money back. Which like, yeah. it's an interesting spin on it. I, I feel like it probably depends on the type of person, which one would be more effective. But you definitely have yeah. to be like very charming to pull this off in person. This dude is like like this guy. This guy fucking rules. Just as far as like <laughs> charisma goes, like it may not be in the good guys club, but it's in terms of like the this guy fucking rules club. Yeah, like, yeah this yeah. guy is for sure in it. Um, yeah, people. This scam went on for fifteen years. We're gonna get into the deeds, but e even at the end, there's people who are like, no, he just needs some more time. Like, yeah, you know, yeah, he's yeah. Like, it's coming through. Yeah. It's just not. Yeah, yet. Yeah. yeah. And he he knew exactly. He, he, but you talked about like, you know, it plays upon Western ignorance and a lot of times like Western guilt. Yeah. And so uh, Bly, uh, Blay Mize's scam wasn't very different. He preyed upon played upon Ghana's political instability and numerous failed regimes to claim Westerners that to claim to Westerners that he needed investors to fund his legal battle to retrieve billions of dollars squirreled away in a Swiss bank by former prime minister Kwame Nkrumah Nkrumah. So Blay uh, Miza told potential financiers that Nkrumah had told him about the secret bank account on his deathbed and entrusted it to him to secure the funds and help guide Ghana to a golden age of economic prosperity. Investors were sold on the idea of either A, like assuaging their white guilt by helping an impoverished African nation, or B, looting a developed country, developing country and securing positions and contracts within the newly formed government. Right. And it, he, it works on, he knew, on a numerous different yeah, perspectives yeah. <laughs> and consciousness, consciousnesses. Yeah. Like, yeah, in Philadelphia in the 70s, like you could get you could get people in like sort of a pan-Africanism, like black power thing. You could get yeah. guilty white liberals. You could get, uh, yeah, just like cowboy profiteer type people. Like, yeah, you got everybody. everybody. Wants you got to everybody. Get yeah. <laughs> Uh, you know, like there's something there's something uh, kind of a once in a lifetime opportunity with state formation you know what I'm like, like, like if you can get it on the ground floor yeah. of a new country it's a big thing. Like, yeah, 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 yeah. Those, they don't just crank those out all the time you know <laughs> totally so yeah and he knew who needed to hear what that was a big part mm. of his appeal was he knew who he, he knew he was talking to probably one of the most cognizant aware dudes we've ever covered um so Going back in his early life, before we get into the scam, uh, John Aka Blamaza was born just Aka Blamaza. He was, they, I found out the term christened, like, oh, we christened him this, is cognate to like Christian name. I didn't mm -hmm. ever think about that. Yeah, yeah, so yeah, because like, yeah, so he, he goes by John, mm -hmm. and uh, John Aka is what a lot of people know him as. But uh, he was born in 1941 in a coastal village in the West African country of Ghana. Uh, the political turmoil he would eventually use as camouflage for his scam unfolded in the 1950s, meaning that he would have been in his early teens, the very oldest, when he was supposed to be becoming a confidant mm -hmm. to Kwame Nkrumah. But it appears no one stopped to do the math, and also he wisely aged himself up. Yeah. He was like, no, I'm actually this old. And they were just like, oh, that's some fucking rich philadelphia housewife was just like you you guys just don't age you right know? <laughs> <laughs> totally <laughs> you look so good for 54 <laughs> like, yeah well what can i say you know <laughs> black don't crack baby <laughs> but he uh so uh so as a boy they, they called him kerosene boy uh because he yeah he sold kerosene and discarded glass bottles so okay. that's uh yeah, Ghana's chief import is nicknames, actually. They don't do them very well. <laughs> they got to bring those in from elsewhere. So from a young age, he was known to like, he was one of those like bullshitter kids, like a Napoleon Dynamite kind of kid. Like, yeah, yeah I had to go hunt. Teller hunt of tales. with my uncle. Yep. A teller of tall tales, yeah. 
So eventually at the age of 18, he traveled to America and eventually landed in Philly. And so he had told his family and his new friends in America that he was pursuing a college degree at Penn, joining the wave of African immigrants seeking a higher education in the city of brotherly love. Uh, at this point, there, uh, Lincoln University and other college in uh, there had more African students enrolled in the 1950s than any other college in the United States. Hmm. Uh, many of them were wealthy, and some even came from royal families. And this is when you started to see the proliferation of a lot of African princes showing up in Philly, mm. you know, because it was just like, and the the author of this uh, of this book, uh, her name is uh, uh, Yakiba Yibo. She uh, was like, she pointed out that like, I think for, she says, quote, I think for a lot of people, it's easier to present yourself like an exotic version of yourself as an African prince than it is to just be a black person in general, yeah. which is a sad truth. I mean, like, I, I, I got, you know, I can't just be a black dude coming here to go to college. I got to totally. have a story. Yeah. So and we I remember when I was in Germany, we lived in the military base and uh, we would have like a lot of international students because, you know, if somebody is like an attache or working with the U.S. government, their kids mm -hmm. are with them. They go to our school. And my sister went to school with these two girls that were from Ghana. Now that I think about it, and they were saying that they were they were they were princesses. And my, my family, like, if they were lying. Who knows? My family hook, line, and sinker. I never got a chance to meet them, but I would like my sister would be like, "Yeah, I'm gonna go hang out with." Them. I forget their names, and I'd just be like, "Bitch, about to hang out the royalty." I was always, yeah. yeah, I was always so jealous. I was like, "When am I gonna see these girls?" <laughs> well, it's also like, I mean, when you think about it in in terms of okay, so it's it's probably like the wealthy people who are sending their their kids to get educated abroad right and yeah. like maybe those people come from families that are very well established in that country and that's why they have money and there's no royal family but you're like i'm not going to explain the position of my family in Ghanaian society to these americans yeah. <laughs> i'm just gonna say i'm a prince you know what i mean yeah like, i'm a prince yeah yeah it's like may a lot of times like there's sort of some vague reference to like being some kind of tribal leader like that's a thing when you're talking about african people but a lot of yeah. times it's just like yeah they're from a rich family and like the rich families in every country run everything, so it's the easiest yeah, yeah, just yeah. to just say, "Yeah, I'm a prince." Or yeah, whatever. like, yeah, sure, yeah, we're, yeah we're a tribal shit. leader in the in the sense that like every society is made of tribes, and like I'm from a rich one, like. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> we uh, in in Colleen, there was a, a big Samoan population, and uh, my my pawn shop boss, her friend, basically she's this guy and he was technically a king, mm -hmm. but basically what it was, was he was like, he was like a community leader and he was, him and some other investors uh, had been granted this island in the Samoan Same. Island chain. And so, yeah, and, and it was like, but it was like, you know, it was like a lot of work. It was like, they had to go clear it out and they're trying to like make it, you know, trying to build it up. And he's like, yeah, technically you could say I'm a king, but he's like, it's just, I'm a business administrator. Like, right. I'm yeah. just a guy, a guy in the community and I have some investors and like, you know, he was super not scammy about it. <laughs> But uh, Blade Miser was not royal, or even a student. By the way, uh, I just want to ask, what is the name of this book that's coming uh, out? The book, oh, the book is called... Bu bu bu. It's called uh, Anansi's Gold. Okay, cool. Anansi's Gold. Anansi's Gold. Yeah, and it's by, by a... Uh, her name is Yakuba Yibo, cool. and she is a, a uh, Ghanaian... Uh, Ghanaian uh, English journalist cool. who is her, this is her first book. So yeah, yeah, definitely go check it out. Uh, I stumbled across this without time to read an entire book. So, <laughs> <laughs> uh, so yeah, he had told his uh, his family and his new friends in America that he was uh, that he was pursuing an education, but in actuality, he was yeah. He was not a royal or even a student. While his roommates went off to class, he worked at the Union League of Philadelphia. It's a private club for the city's wealthiest and most influential residents. Mm, there, good place uh, for an aspiring scammer to hang out. 
Yeah, exactly. He said it was there that he studied what money and power looked like. You know, he's like you know, laying the groundwork uh, for his decades-long scheme. So at, at one point, he travels back to Ghana, and he gets back to Philadelphia in 1972, and he's presenting himself as a doctor with diplomatic ties. Mm-hmm. He ends up checking into the Bellevue Hotel in Philadelphia, a very high-scale place, and he runs up. And I love when you look at like the dollar like inflation amounts or whatever. He ran up 2700 bucks in 1972 money. Nice. <laughs> that's like, yeah, I, I believe like that's a 10K. four-year college education. Yeah. <laughs> Hell yeah. So yeah, he, he ran up a 2700 bill at the Bellevue was arrested at the hotel after, after they discovered that the Ghanaian embassy would not, in fact, be covering the expense. <laughs> <laughs> and Blame Isaac claimed it was all a big misunderstanding, but that couldn't save him from a nearly, nearly year-long sentence at uh, Greaterford State Prison. And it would have been longer were it not for the prison chaplain, a guy named Reverend James Edward Woodruff. And he was one of the first Americans to buy into uh, Blame Isaac's tall tales. The basic story, which would change many times over the decades, is as follows was that Blay Miza had been a close ally of Ghana's President Nkrumah, who had become that country's first leader after the new nation had declared independence from Great Britain. He was deposed in a coup in 1966 that had CIA fingerprints all over it, mm-hmm. and he eventually died in exile in 1972. Um, so what's funny is, like, if so, he died in exile in 1972 in Bucharest in, uh, in Romania, and this is where... Blame Isaac claimed that he was at his bedside, yep. but in 1972, he was in prison right. with this guy he was telling the story to, <laughs> and that's just because you couldn't Google shit. You couldn't... Yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah. And, like, people... I mean, like you said, it exploits the sort of ignorance of your average American to to yeah. anything going on with Africa or, yeah, African countries or anything. So he's yeah. saying, this is the part of the story that he does tell this guy. He says, I was at Nkrumah's death, deathbed to this chaplain. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, to this chaplain. And the guy's like, well, among, I'm sure, a bunch of, a bunch of other tales. Sure, sure. And that's, and that's what he, he tells him that before he passed, the president had entrusted him, Blame Isa, with the deed to the secret fortune. Millions. Well, it started off as millions. And then it was like, did I say millions? I meant billions. I meant this dude gave me billions. And he had, it was in gold that he had, uh, Nkrumah had smuggled out of the country into a Swiss bank. And it was the key to Ghana's future, uh, as they as they put it. It was just all the money they ever had. Yeah. Um, history has painted uh, Nkrumah, as, depending on how you look at him, um, either he was like... Uh, I should say not history, but this story paints him as either like a thief. Like there's people who could hear this story, be like, whoa, 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 he took all the gold and like right. ran out of the country before he's deposed. Like, so yeah, there's people who do like him and people that don't like him. Mm. Uh, but yeah, in this story, sir, this, this story falls into each narrative, if you, however you want it to, to sure. you know, either he saved the day or he ruined it. Mm. But so the background on what Ghana was going through at the time and kind of like why it was so unstable, why it was a place where you could make a lot of shit up about and nobody would check, uh, was that so – and also just the fact of why it was in such financial bad shape. And I don't think it takes – you know, we, I think we all know what's coming. <laughs> why, why a West African country formerly out of British rule was in financially bad shape. Yeah. But essentially – in 1952, the West African nation of Ghana, recently having freed itself from British imperialism, set out on a project of radical economic ambition. It attained political independence with the creation of a sovereign parliament and executive office called the Convention People's Party, under the leadership of Kwame Nkrumah. It drew up extensive plans for ensuring the conditions of for necessary for re, that conditions were necessary for real, not just on paper, independence. And that meant 
independence of the agricultural and industrial sectors from domination mm-hmm. by European capital. Mm-hmm. But now the thing is, is this is why I, uh, one thing that I've, I found out in researching this and a little bit before this was like, you always wonder like, why aren't things so bad in these third world, in like third world countries or other parts? Of, like, why is it, why is there no infrastructure? You know, why, why is that? Well, what drew all the interest in these places, of course, was our resources. And I was watching a video about how it basically resource they're set, they're not set up for resource development or resource enrichment or resource manufacturing they're set up for resource extraction yeah so all of their all of their shit like the, the some of these places had two paved roads for a significant portion of their history and it was like from a gold mine to the coast yeah from a uh you know and from like a cocoa plantation to the coast yeah and that was it it was like we don't fucking it was like well the people actually live here here and here we don't give a shit you know right. so those those we, Those have, urban centers we maybe are have crumble. some roads for them to get to the place where they're uh, yeah, mining yeah. the gold. Yeah. But we don't also, care could you see where they're at? Now. It is late. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. They should be here by now. I don't know why they're not here, actually. But uh, so, yeah, that was like, you know, that, that was the problem that it had. Also, Ghana's chief export was cocoa and gold and timber was their mm-hmm. main resources of revenue. And as in many developed countries, these products were exported in unprocessed form. So all manufacture and processing of materials was done by industries in Europe and the United States. Mm-hmm. So money from exports went to wealthy, wealthy plantation owners in Ghana who had little incentive to invest in productive areas. Right. So. The wealth, the wealthy countries created jobs. Like there's, you know, there's lumber mills in America. There's you know people who are processing cocoa all over the world, and then like there's a country that actually sells the cocoa in its raw form, and they're getting they're just getting the one time transaction. Like hey, there you right. go, thanks. Maybe pay a couple guys to drive it, but it's like it's not creating jobs. Right. It's not creating you know financial power or growth in, in any way. Right. And so that was the, the the state that it was left in after British rule. So. So because of this, because of this instability, he's able to spin this tale to this prison warden or prison chaplain. And this dude buys it hook, line and sinker and was like, I'm going to get you out of here. And he was connected into a lot of powerful people in Philadelphia's black community. Mm -hmm. And so he introduced him to a construction company owner named Robert Ellis. And you you had mentioned about the like pan-Africanism and black power movements and like in the seventies, this was right around that time. Here's a very successful black guy who's like in the city. He's like, you know, he's like, it's not just, you know, in retail, he's like doing construction. He's building shit. He's like, uh, you know, ahead of the city. Yeah. And he, he introduces it. A community leader. There you go. Why couldn't I think of that term? (laughs) (laughs) I was like, he's a guy in charge. I don't know. (laughs) But yeah, so they, they introduce him. And together, Blay uh, Miza and and Robert Ellis established what's called they called the Office for the Bureau of African Affairs and Industrial Development. Sounds like a governmental agency, right? It's actually just an import export company. It's completely it's you know so it's Federal Express. They're sort of doing the same thing that the name of their company professes them not to be doing, which is developing infrastructure in <laughs> Ghana, <laughs> which is the whole thing that you said. Like that's they don't yeah. have that. They just yeah. have uh, abilities to export. It's all entirely extractive. And so these yeah. guys are also further extracting, but they've named it something that sounds like. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. African Affairs and Industrial and Development. Yeah, it's- I, I don't know if you get into this or not in, in what you read, but I'm imagining if Nkrumah was um, overthrown in a coup that probably had something to do with the CIA, my guess is that he probably tried to nationalize those industries. Is yeah, that right? That, that, yeah, that, okay. that was it. Yeah, he was. That's, yeah, like yeah, the yeah, main, yeah. that's the main way. If yeah. you want the CIA to come hang out with you, uh, 
be a recently independent country and nationalize a commercial industry. They will be there yeah. very quickly and yeah, you will yeah. get deposed. That's our favorite thing to do. Yeah. Yeah, but yeah, that's like like I I I've, I've listened to that uh um blowback podcast about mm-hmm. about Cuba and Castro and like I always, you know, like I, I unlearned a lot of things that I was told growing up as sure. the only order that you get. I think most sensible people do that. And but like one of the ones that I was always just like, nah, Castro probably sucked. You know, saying so, or like Cuba probably was bad. Like I that was one of those things that I just was like a given that like I'm pretty sure I'd gotten the story on. Mm-hmm. And then I actually heard it and I was like, Jesus fucking Christ, man. Like I, I knew it wasn't outside the rebel possibility, like maybe I'd fed a different story, but I actually by learning about all that, that was that was pretty mind blowing. I was like, Oh wow, that's Wow. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Cuba is like, it's, it's a really fascinating case. And it's interesting because like, obviously there is uh, the sort of American um, diplomatic interest to keep Americans thinking Cuba is bad after the whole cold war and everything. I mean, particularly during that, like it, it makes total, like there's a, there's a real sort of political interest in keeping people thinking that Cuba is bad. And then also most of the people that immigrated from Cuba at that time are like, yeah. dude, let me tell you about how bad Cuba is. They kicked me out. They took my family's sugar plantation. And so you're like, wow, yeah, yeah Cuba sounds really bad. They took your family's sugar plantation. That's terrible. And then you yeah. find out like, oh, yeah, the people working on that plantation rose up and overthrew you, basically. <laughs> like, yeah, 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 yeah. It wasn't just, yeah, you guys weren't just like having like the ha- happy, fun time sugar land. Right, like, right, yeah, right. Yeah. But yeah, I do feel like if you want a shortcut to understanding American foreign policy, um, it, it, if if any country nationalized something and then immediately fell, we did that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We did that. That's like a, a good sort of global policy um, to understand. But anyway, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Man, dude, yeah, that that's a uh, that was yeah, that was a crazy one. Uh, well, a, f- a bunch of our friends, uh, uh, of our comedian friends, just took a trip to Cuba, and uh, they, they said it was it was fun, but it was definitely a lot of people just like trying to sell you stuff but their way in is like they're like hey man we love america it's all politics fuck that shit people for people but anyways here's a 400 dollars coconut statue or whatever like, <laughs> yeah so they're they're coming around to capitalism and everybody's very happy oh yeah i uh, mean like don't, don't get me wrong like cuba has cuba has problems for sure uh yeah. they're they're still you know a lot of poor people there and it's still like they they lack a lot of the infrastructure we have but also it's like yeah, because the U.S. has had sanctions against them for yeah, for that, like that was like, years. like yeah, <laughs> that that's what the, what I was really like looking at it was like well, all these things were like oh well, you, you want you want communism look at look at over look how it's working over here how it's working over here it's like we all these countries that, that we've bad. had our fucking yeah we've had our foot on their necks for the last forty years you know like, <laughs> right. or sixty years yeah yeah it doesn't like that that was a big learning thing for me it was like I read a, a book also called How to Hide an Empire mm-hmm. that was really good uh, recently it kind of says the same thing I'll so check that out that sounds good. Yeah, yeah, that was a really good one. I, I saw it on just literally like uh, a leftist book list, and I was, nice. I was still I was touring, and I was like, "Well, I have twenty four hours to listen to an audio t- audio book. Let's go." <laughs> nice. So, Blay Maza, yeah, so they established the Bureau of African Affairs and Industrial Development and Port Export Company, the oxymoron. Um, it was designed to re- resemble an actual government agency. From their headquarters in Bala Kenwood, Ellis and Blamiza would sign new investors to the so-called Oman Ghana Trust Fund. Uh, not Oman the country, I guess Oman in their language literally just means our country. So it's the Our Country Ghana Trust Fund. Okay. Uh, now here's the 
that plays a very important part because um, that is the actual business that people are buying into. That's the that's the heart. That's the legs of the scam over the next 15 years. Mm -hmm. So many were lawyers or business owners who were also promised lucrative contracts with the Ghanaian government. But as business continued, and this is where I say it turns into like a, a little more just run of the mill, pre- you know, predatory shit where it's not so much rob from the rich and give to the poor. Um, he started, uh, you know, the, the, the list F- foreign students, elderly widows, you know, people uh, with retirement funds roped into the scheme as well. So it wasn't just the wealthy that he was hitting, but all were told that their, their investment would help, uh, blame Isa clear the necessary red tape to bring the money home to Ghana and that they would be repaid tenfold, perhaps even 20. Uh, when the initial payment date passed, there was always an excuse, a promise of a still greater return and request for more money. So it did sound like a lot of these people let their greed overtake their common sense. Because mm-hmm. if, 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 if a guy told you he's going to get you 10% return and then he doesn't have it for you, he tells you to give him six months and he'll give you 20 like you know, like that's that ball yeah. is really in your court at that point. Like. Yeah, but like with the right sort of, you know, um, I always think of, uh, you know, the original ver- like original meaning of the word glamour was to kind of like, yeah, sort of yeah, to, to, s- to smoke screen and mystify someone with like, you know, uh, it, it originally was like a magic, like talking about specifically magic, but like yeah. just to like do a glamour on someone, like make them. Make them think something else is going on, like distract them with something shiny and nice. That's yeah, like, yeah. that's what's happening when you're getting told this stuff and you're still believing it. Is like, yeah, yeah, yeah. You've been glamorous. You're definitely getting victimized for sure. Yeah, yeah. Like, like that dude's running, running game on you. Yeah, uh, with like, with like some, some very clever misdirection. You know, like, yeah. I'd imagine he's you, very adept at, at managing people in this way. Yeah, it, it's it seems so. There's a, we'll we'll get to it a bit. He he got interviewed by Ed Bradley for sixty minutes, and uh, it is a hilarious interview. Is it after like, he's been like nailed, like after they know he's a scammer. We, yeah, after he knows he's a scammer, and he does not give a shit, nice. <laughs> and uh, and he just completely is like everyone else is lying. I you know like it's 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 just it's gold, and like in that is Ed Bradley too because he the dude really puts on like he's like you know obviously I'm sure he is very. Uh, respectful of his country's traditions, but it feels like he really knows how to crank up the Africa to 11. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. yeah. And like, I, and I think like, especially during that time period when like, if this is like in the sixties and seventies, um, there are a lot of like newly independent nations in Africa. Like, yeah, it's, it's like a very politically fraught time for that part of the world. And uh, it's sort of like emerging attitudes about it in America. Like I can totally see him playing up that that attitude <laughs> to like, yeah, get like overly reverent white liberals and also yeah, yeah, like yeah. Pa- uh, black Americans who are interested in like pan-Africanism and like, yeah, it's just it's a perfect storm of uh, people to swindle. Yeah, yeah, time and place. It's like, you know, they talk about like the great man theory in history, and it's like mm-hmm. there's a theory that like great men come along and make changes, or that there's like the counterpoint of that. It's like, no, like like when the t- when the circumstances are right, it will like a person, a type of person gets produced. Yes. And the it, times <laughs> make the man. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. yeah. True, that is true of scam artists as well, for sure. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> this guy, yeah, he was of the time. There's in that scene interview, it shows him he took like a lot of his like his like really rich Philadelphia, like 
lawyer and doctor investors and he's at the, like this this like conference room and there's just like an african dance troupe and they're just like Hell going yeah. crazy and these and it's like these people are it's like early 80s so they have like the suits and stuff they're just like oh wow oh, like the looks on their faces you it's, just, it's hilarious you just unlocked a, a memory for me that i totally forgot about that now i need to like investigate where so i grew up in new hampshire which is very yeah. white very very white <laughs> and when i was in fifth grade a guy came and taught us African dance and we did like an African dance recital. All these little white kids in, we <laughs> made, I remember we made like, we made like traditional African clothes. Like I remember like in art class, we did like these, yeah. these tie dye project and it, all these little white 10 year olds did this African <laughs> dance. And like, there was like African <laughs> drumming and stuff. And uh, that, yeah, man, and now what, I'm, what, maybe that was also a scam artist, but now I'm just like, Man, they really that would not happen now. Like I think you yeah. would get in trouble now. I think Yeah, yeah. I the, like that era of multiculturalism has passed, I think. I don't yeah, think you're yeah. allowed to do that anymore. <laughs> Even though it was like really fun and we we learned yeah. about Africa and like it was cool. Uh don't think don't think we'd be doing it now. I think we'd be yeah, learning yeah. about Africa in some other way, perhaps. Yeah, in a different capacity. That'd be hilarious anyway. if that dude was just making that shit up. He was yeah. just like, yeah, yeah, he was just totally. I want to like find the, out like what his deal was. He was yeah. like, he was a dude who like lived in town, and I'm sure. It, I, I'm very curious. Oh, I, th- I, was, I always got like a Lyle Landley impression. Like he just came into town. He was just like, hey, it's the one black guy in New Hampshire. Check this out. I've got, like, have I got a way to fill an afternoon for you? Yeah, <laughs> I got to like ask my parents about that. Like, what was the deal with that? What, why did yeah. that happen? I mean, it was public school. Like, I don't Anyway, I don't know. Dude, we I, I had this this one mystery just confounds me. And I hope that when you die, you just find everything out. I don't know what mm-hmm. happens, but I hope you just get all the information. Like, oh, that's where I left my keys, shit like that. Sure. And like, but like this one time we we had a guy, a substitute teacher come to our school in fourth grade in El Paso, and he was like, Do you guys know UPS? He asked about UPS, and we were like, mm-hmm. Yeah, you know about UPS. He goes, Okay, so UPS treats their employees really bad. And, and I used to work there, and they were really mean to me. And so we're going to do like a, 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 we're all going to draw pictures making fun of UPS. And like, literally, he was like, and he was like, done nothing bad, done anything bad. He was like, he was like, for example, it might be like, hey, UPS, you donkeys, and we'll draw a donkey wearing a UPS thing. He literally did that on the chalkboard. Uh-huh. And we all drew an anti UPS picture and passed it up to the front. And then, like, he was gone, and two weeks later, he just stopped He stopped back by, and our normal teacher was there, and he goes, hey, I was one of the substitutes, I just came by to check up, and I overheard her, and she goes, yeah, that doesn't normally happen, normally substitute teachers don't stop back by and check up, and you yeah. can tell she was mad suspicious of this guy, and I'm just like, did he just show back up to his old UPS job, like, fuck you, kids hate you, <laughs> like, yeah, like, I don't know. very curious. However, Very strange. Do, yeah, they're like about to strike, so that yeah, guy's yeah, cool. that guy was. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I would love to know I what hope, that guy's deal was. Yeah, I always I think about that a lot these days. I wonder. <laughs> I would like to see if I looked at the UPS strike, like some older Latino man. That's about how old he'd be now, yeah. with like a sign that's like "UPS, you donkeys." And he's like, <laughs> <laughs> keep an eye out, everybody. <laughs> yeah, yeah. If you see that, yeah, yeah, send it to the uh, the Twitter um, <laughs> at LCS Podcast, but. So, yeah, so in addition to swindling many Philadelphians out of their money, this dude, he just did a bunch of wild, like, just scam Connard shit. Uh, Blame Isa definitely married to solve his immigration problem. Sure. That was, first, yeah, first things first for a guy like that. But this is just kind of cool and also a little scary and showing how things have changed. Um, he was able to steal college degrees. So that's the thing. He had, like, all sorts of degrees from these, these universities, and it was because he used to live with a guy 
named Jacob Badu, uh, who was another African guy who came over here and he actually got like a, a you know a master's from Penn. He got like all these mm-hmm. very prestigious degrees. And Blaine Miza just contacted Penn and said, "Hey, it's Jacob Badu. I changed my name. Can you guys reprint my fucking things wow. for me?" And it was all it took was an eleven dollar administrative fee. They were oh like, "Yeah, yeah, we got you, man." Wow. So he had like, yeah, he, he had, didn't have to provide documentation or anything. They were just like, yep, not, you changed over your the name. phone. Yep, wow. yeah, yeah. That's insane. what a time to be yeah. alive. Yeah, <laughs> people had it easy so, back then. Why wasn't everyone doing that? Yeah. Oh, you could get like eight people to all share one degree. It'd be great. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> hey, Pint. Yeah, no, I changed it back. I changed it back to fucking uh, to I Bill. I'll read that back. Yeah. 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 <laughs> I'm just so freaking indecisive. <laughs> so um, here we go. Yeah. So I did want to read just kind of like to get like the uh, to get the. Um, yeah, uh, Yepika Yepika Yibo, uh, she wrote a uh, an excerpt. She had an excerpt of her book in a town and country article, and just to kind of give an idea of how he was running game on these people. Mm-hmm. Uh, this was a standard business meeting that he had uh, he had set up for his investors in the Omen Ghana uh, trust fund, and he had invited them to the Channel Islands at this like luxury resort. Nice. And so this is this is a, an excerpt from the book, just kind of showing what like the razzle dazzle he would put on these people. Mm-hmm. So. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Guernsey, said the flight attendant as the tiny plane descended over a patchwork of brown-green fields and coastline. The, o- the Oman Ghana Trust Fund had come to the Channel Islands. The investors trooped across the tarmac into the airport, carrying suitcases and wrapped in trench coats, wearing looks of grim determination. Guernsey was cold, wet, and miserable, and so were they. But they had been told that the trust fund would finally be paying out. The, but the small group of Ghanaian, South Korean, American, and British supporters was subdued. It had been years, and there was none of this, none of the excitement of previous trips. So he's been taking them out, and now it's like losing the luster. Yeah. Like they're yeah, they're, they're 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 like I guess they used to go like way cooler places. Now they're in a fucking you know like a rainy British island. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, I, it's so, not the first place I would go for like a, a luxurious vacation. I bet yeah, it's very yeah, nice, yeah. but yeah, yeah but <laughs> you can tell this is trip number something. Yeah. It's not the first. Boy, time. yeah, they got they serve cod so many different ways. You're not even gonna, <laughs> uh, you're not even gonna to do with all the salted cod you're about to eat <laughs> on this fucking vacation. So the tiny island of Guernsey, marooned in the English Channel off the coast of France, had long been a center of offshore banking and a favorite resort for American grifters. Phil Wilson, a con man from St. Louis, ran the Bank of Sar- the Bank of Sark on Guernsey in the late 1960s. The operation was, in its entirety, quote, a mail drop, a telex machine, and a barmaid, <laughs> and it made millions. <laughs> Uh, Blay Miza had flown in ahead of the investors and was situated in a suite at the La Grande Mar, a relatively new hotel on the West Coast. Mary Lou Valenote, Blay Miza's secretary from Philadelphia, had also landed earlier. Now she ushered new arrivals through a set of white double doors and into the reception room of Blay Miza's suite, where they all settled in overstuffed sofas. New Jersey businessman Walter Hajduk, uh, who they said they got him for $7 million. That guy Ooh. gave him se- yeah, <laughs> yeah, seven million in early '80s money. Like I can't stress <laughs> that <laughs> enough. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So he was. Uh, they had Walter Hushdack, uh There was uh, Peter Rigby, E.D.M. Stevens, and there was a also this guy Stevens is a police officer sent by the Ghanaian government to monitor Blay Mize's overseas travels. That's uh, that's how much they don't trust him. Yeah. So 
Athlete Kim Chung Han, part of Blamiza's entourage, translated for the South Korean investors. In a second smaller sitting room, Blamiza dressed casually in a red patterned shirt and light slacks. Also, this dude was like dressed to the nines all the time. If it wasn't in like completely tailored suits from Lloyd's of London and shit, this dude was rocking like uh, straight up like traditional African tribal gear. Oh, yeah. Uh, but yeah, always he has dripping, the drip 100%. In all, in all <laughs> yeah, cultures. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the universal language of drip. Yeah. And uh, so in a second smaller room, Blame Eyes was dressed. Yeah. So almost every one of them. Now, these guys were all dressed in like dark wool suits, very 80s, very brown. Sure. Um, so at one point, he showed them the Ghanaian national handshake, which I'm like almost 100% sure he made up. <laughs> he was like, yeah, then we, <laughs> yeah, then we do a flip flap, come back up. around. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> yeah, then I run around you, you run around me. <laughs> we're going to do a figure eight, and then we high five at the end. Uh, and these white people were just like, okay. They're all just dancing <laughs> totally. along with that shit. <laughs> so... Um, this, uh, so, yeah, so he showed me the, the handshake. So the investors had spent most of his brief trip in their suites gossiping or wandering around the island in the rain waiting for something to happen. And although he spent a great deal of his time living in hotels, Blame Isa hated hotel food. Uh, so he traveled with a personal chef. Oh, this dude lived like a king. He traveled with a personal chef who brought ingredients straight from Ghana and cooked only for him. A lot of times he would make these, like, crazy stews that you had to cook for hours, and the hotel staff would just be like, Hey man, the whole place smells like goat. You know, what I'm like, like what are you doing, dog? And like he would just be like, "Oh yeah, sorry. Um, go look at how much I how much money I pay you." And they were like, "Right, solid yeah, yeah. point." Yeah, <laughs> yeah. But they were constantly like opening windows and just like trying to air out places. So at least some... these people's money was going to a good cause, which is this guy eating good and dressing nice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. This dude, there's mad photos of him smoking a cigar, Hell and he yeah. smokes a cigar like he's ripping you off. You can just tell the way he smokes that cigar. That is a, a real like. Yeah. There is yeah, a way no... to smoke a cigar where you know someone is scamming. It's, it's yeah, a yeah. good look. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and he's doing it, and boy, he's wearing it. <laughs> um, so, soon, sooner than usual, the word came from Blay Miza. The money's still locked up. There'd be another delay. Uh, Blay Miza had his Louis Vuitton trunks packed again and ha- headed back to London. The investors straggled after him. It's become very awkward, one complained. Uh, Blame Miza, as usual, had not explained much about what had gone wrong. On the way back to London, the investors filed in with the rest, of, uh, filled in the rest of wild speculation. But as they all said, Blame Miza was a financial wizard. They all agreed on that. So the fault must have lain with some arcane banking have, role. If he didn't know how to be good with money, how would he afford these cigars? <laughs> yeah, Frankly, yeah. <laughs> it's obvious. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If this guy wasn't good with money, how'd I, why'd I give him all my money? You think right. about that, right? You know, like, exactly. yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, he's He's not good with money. He got $7 million out of me. He must be doing something right. Right. <laughs> uh, so, Reed, so, Blake, uh, Miza had not explained. On the way back to London, they were all kind of wondering, like, what the hell happened. Reed, one of his investors, was under the impression that the funds had been trapped in five banks for decades now. Mm-hmm. Uh, actually, uh, Hodgduk interrupted. The other guy was like, no, no, it's 16 banks. So, they even told him all you know, different the numbers of banks. Because as, as uh, Homeboy said, he was like, these 16 banks. Now, if you take 27 billion and 27 billion, 800 million, right? That means that each of these banks has a billion and a half, he said. So the money was all transferred to five banks. Now, those banks have it now, <laughs> one of which is Butterworth, he said, in Bermuda. It turns out there is a bank in Bermuda called NT Butterfield and Son. <laughs> but okay. this dude, yeah, he just fucked it up and called it Butterworth. He's like, look, I got it in Butterworth. I got half an, I got half an Uncle Ben. You know? <laughs> and so the Jemima index has all been down these days. <laughs> but, um, so he goes, all right, so look, 
He was like, the banks also, they need me to sweeten the deal for him. So I, I went ahead and kicked him a little bit of bread, so I'm going to need that back from you guys. Uh, now, it's going to be 50 bank days. Now, that's some 75 regular days, including weekends. Reed, uh, a British act, a British investor, was like, man, look, we're in a lot of shit now, is what he told me. He was like, wait, I haven't got a credit card that I can use. And, uh... And then fucking, you know, homeboy, a couple people were like, you know, you do what you want. The Hodgdick guy who was in for $7 million was like, look, I don't even care anymore. This is when it was, things were kind of starting to fall apart. Yeah. So, it, uh, so yeah, that's kind of like how things were, were going on. But Ellis continued to run the scheme in Philly for years. And until state prosecutors finally caught up to him in 1986, after losing patience with Blamize's excuses, one of the investors, a Philly lawyer named Barry Ginsburg, uh, had contact Barry Ginsburg sounds like a record executive. Anyways, but, uh, Barry Ginsburg had contacted an assistant district attorney for Philadelphia. Uh, Ellis was arrested in January. This is Robert Ellis. This is the construction guy who was his partner. Mm-hmm. Was arrested in January of '86 and hauled into court later that spring. He stood trial before uh, Judge Lynn Abraham, who would also go on to become Philly's first female attorney general. Yeah, okay. uh, they said that yeah, she was super hardcore. She carried a gun, drank three cups of coffee a day, and oh, was yeah. an outspoken supporter of the death penalty <laughs> just, this crazy caffeinated gun wielding bitch <laughs> with a horrible accent pronouncing it turlet <laughs> just a real real bang up job all around but uh so prosecutors that estimated that in the philadelphia area uh he had swindled about 300 people and though those were amazingly just the victims willing to talk, as we know, a lot of people don't come forward with stuff like right. this. Yeah, yeah. People um, get so embarrassed, they don't even <coughs> say that this yeah. happened to them. Completely understandable. Uh, they had more than $15 million collectively, uh, but that's a drop in the bucket to the, at the minimum, this dude got $100 million. $100 yeah. million is the agreed minimum. upon. Some people say it's as high as three hundred. Yeah. Yeah. And reportedly, he had scammed people from all over the world. At this point, an arrest, issue, arrest warrant was issued for Blame Isa, but he was already out of the country. So then he goes. This is this is where this is where shit goes. Like elevates him from like, you know, normal story to just like god tier status. So <laughs> he's back in Ghana, and when while in Ghana, he gets charged with financial crimes against the state. So he tries to swindle the state government. Yeah. Uh, it may have had something to do with the whole Ghana trust thing. Probably. He was talking about how, yeah, I mean, yeah. I would he's imagine representing if he's like trying to represent himself as somehow affiliated with the state. And he's yeah. not. And he's like, yeah, that's you're not allowed to do that. Yeah. That, <laughs> that carried the Yeah, yeah. That carried the death penalty in Ghana. Oh so shit. This, okay. Yeah. So this dude was on death row. And so this is what he does, basically. He's just like he convinces them to let him go and to go to London as a diplomatic emissary to try to work to get some of this money that he's got out there. Because he's like, I, I, I got money. Don't worry about how I got it. I got it, though. Yeah. All right. And you guys got to let me go get it because, hey, God, do you have a lot of money? Oh, that's right. You don't. <laughs> you guys don't have a lot of money. I do. Uh, I'll go get some of my money. And so they, they, they took him he out of death. He pulls the scam on him. Yeah, them. exactly. Yeah. Like, yeah, yeah. Hey, I have a lot of money. It's tied up in a bank in another country. Let me go get it. Which is exactly yeah. the scam he was running on the individual people. He yeah, runs dude. on Ghana itself. Yeah. That's crazy. At one point in his life, this is when he was still, I believe he was still in in Ghana. Uh, he got charged with a uh, with some some kind of fraud or something. And he was like, you know what? Look, you're right. I did this. Take me to the bank. I'll get the money out. I'll pay you back. And the cops drove him to the bank, and he escaped through the bathroom window. Of course. Of course he did. Yeah, I was like, man, I don't think he's coming out of that bank. (laughs) I I 
think I fucked up. I think I fucked That's up. Let him go the, in that the bank. The Indian guy we covered did that. Too. Yeah, yeah. Warlaw did that. Yeah. yeah, that was. Yeah, we had a lot of views on that video uh, on the, uh, the the TikTok and the Facebook. So yeah, that was a international hit. <laughs> but so he goes to London, and then while in London, he has diplomatic immunity. So he can't get arrested in London. Yeah, he's, he's canceled there his because Ghana sent him. Yeah, there. and he's got tons of British investors. So there's yeah. people in there's people in Britain that want his ass. Yeah, you know and and he's there, and he's you know he lives in in a, in a fucking beautiful penthouse in London. He drives a Rolls Royce. Also, the cop that arrested him in Ghana is working for him now. <laughs> That's yeah. like his security guy, and so he's just there. So they end up doing an interview uh, with this guy on 60 Minutes, and they send uh, a young Ed Bradley who still looks old. And uh, like, oh, R.I.P. Ed Bradley. I didn't know he died all the way back in 2005. R.I.P. So, R.I.P. So he goes to, so yeah, he's in, a, in the 60 Minutes interview. He starts off the interview by coming in, and uh, he sits Ed Bradley in a regular-ass chair, and then he pulls out a throne. Heck and yeah. Sits, yep. And sits in the throne. He's done up, and he goes, before we start, I need to do an ancient Ghanaian ritual that is uh, that we do before we speak the truth. <laughs> and he takes, yeah, he takes a sip of water and fucking, uh, yeah, takes a sip of water and like spits it into like these like wooden blade looking things. And one of them is okay. for, like uh, th- it, it each it's three gulps, three spits, and it stands for see no evil, speak or no uh, speak the whole the whole truth, the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. I don't think that's Again, a saying. I don't know. Yeah, <laughs> I don't. Yeah, that seems very, very Western. So, <laughs> and he, he sits down, and he's like, uh, "Yeah, basically, he's like, look, I work for the Ghanaian government. Uh, you know, I do." Um, like they, they have me here on, on, as an emissary. Uh, he was like, so what about like, you know, all the people who say you ever gave their money? He's like, yeah, the money's coming. He just completely denies everything. Course, like, the money's yeah. on the way. And uh, he was like, yeah, I'm good with the Ghanaian government. Here's the one thing he had to do, though. They were like, yeah, you can get back out there. Do your thing. We don't give a shit. But you can't mention Kwame and Krume. So you, you you can't mention the ex-president. So he had to take his name off the sales pitch. Furthermore, he had to retroactively go back and be like, I never said it was him yeah, who gave me the fucking that, money. That, that's where the money comes from, yeah. Yeah, and he does it with just ease like he's like he's like so why are it's like ed bradley is just mystified by this guy he's like why are they saying that you said it was the president all these like i don't know i i don't know he's like things rumors start things get built up but no it, it, that was all hearsay if you speak it straight to me i would have told you that it came from my ancestors and he's like yeah. all right well how'd they get the money and he goes can't disclose that <laughs> that's you know this dude again Pretty cool. Um, now, at one point, he got arrested in London for bribery. Or no, he got arrested back in Ghana for bribery to bribe a, a government official. One of his investors, and a guy, a former U.S. attorney John Mitchell of Watergate infamy, okay. was one of this guy's marks. Okay. He scammed him. And this dude was so sold on him that he came was like, hey, man, like I'll fucking... Um, uh, he came and basically vouched for him on his behalf and got him out of prison uh, over in Africa. And that guy, yeah, also John Mitchell, one of his guys, they were like, how much money did John Mitchell give you? And he goes, he's never given me money, but he's given me his time, which is valuable. And so he's like basically got this dude running errands for his ass. Um, yeah. His partner, however, back in America, Ellis, Rob Ellis, got popped with everything. Yeah. He took like, like all the 100% charges, full rollout, uh, 5 to 15 
uh, years in prison. He was arrested again in 1992 for tax evasion. Uh, sounds like he put a cloud over that dude's whole fucking life. Yeah. Well, I mean, the guy, that guy was doing it too. It wasn't like he he was getting scammed. Also, like he was part, he was in on he it. He was in on it, but still, yeah, <laughs> yeah, it sucks. This dude, so but he they leaves. took it he, out on him because they couldn't get. Yeah, yeah, because they couldn't get him. They, it wasn't like he was hiding like off the grid. He was living in London, right. driving a Rolls Royce with like, diplomatic <laughs> immunity. Yeah, yeah, with his diplomatic. old guard working for him. Yeah, yeah, they, uh, yeah. So he ended up. So he did pass away uh, in in Accra, the capital of Ghana, under house arrest. Uh, given as many endless spins though, and many feigned heart attacks. This is the thing gonna get to. This guy was real quick to be like, oh, the, the cops. Are, ah! and he oh, was just like rocks. immediately, awesome. yeah. <laughs> He was like made like no no hesitation to fake a heart attack. <laughs> so it was a scheme that at various points. Uh, oh yeah. So he, because of all of his scheming, people were like, I don't know if he's really dead. And finally, yeah. the Ghanaian the Ghanaian government, at the request of the FBI, obtained fingerprints from his corpse. <laughs> just yeah, because people yeah they're just like, like Andy, yeah you got He's like sure. Andy Kaufman of scamming. Like people yeah, don't yeah. think he's really dead. <laughs> yeah. So this is one of those scams that up until the very end, he had hardcore believers that were still like, no, this he's is going to be good. He's, yeah, he's, he's coming through. Money. Mm. Yeah, uh, despite overwhelming evidence to the contrary. Uh, it was a scheme that at various points involved not just average Philadelphians, but the prominent, prominent figures like uh, nightclub owner Ben Bynum and, like I said, even John Mitchell, the former U.S. Attorney General, yeah. disgraced by his involvement in Watergate. Everyone wanted to believe in the treasure buried in the Swiss vaults, which could uh, instantly uplift Ghana after years of colonialism, bloody coups, and make them fabulously wealthy in the process. But it just looks as the years tick on and we're, you know, close to 40 years after his death. I don't think it's going to happen, but worth it. 100%. Yeah, totally. It sounds like he this is a, did this is a great I mean, way. He, to, yeah. He did end up in house arrest, you said. So something yeah, happened. Yeah, but at, after at a certain point. age, at a certain age, isn't house arrest Where just like, gonna what are we going to do? Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah, you're just, yeah. You're just hanging out at the crib. I mean, like, I don't know. It feels like he had a really good time in the meantime. Yeah, it so, does. Yeah, that is, yeah, that is the story of John Aka Blameiza. And yeah, go check it out. And again, that book, it's called Anansi's Gold. That is out. Go read that for me. I couldn't tell me about it. Um, <laughs> yeah, if you guys are just tuning in, like I said, we uh, we do two of these for free every month. And we uh, we also have two more episodes available on our Patreon. That's patreon.com slash lie, cheat, and steal. Get you access to our whole back catalog as well as our Discord. You can follow us on Twitter at LCS Podcast and at t- on TikTok at lie, cheat, steal, podcast. Uh, Kathy, got anything coming up for us? Um, yeah, but I don't know when this is going to come out. So follow me on social media, Kath Barbadoro, B-A-R-B-A-D-O-R-O. I post all my dates on Twitter and Instagram. Uh, I do stand up in the New York City area. Uh, I have another podcast called What a Time to Be Alive that comes out every week. And I think that's it for me. What you got, Pat? Let's see. Yeah, I don't, I'm, I'm going to be in the Velveeta Room all this weekend, but that may not be in time for you to hear that. So I have a new monthly show that I'm running at South Austin Comedy Club called Saturday Pint Live, and we're doing the second one. It's going to be on August 19th. Uh, that one, we did like a standard like headliner, like guest feature headliner lineup mm-hmm. last time. Now it's straight up showcase, six comics, 10 yes. minutes each. Bang, you know, come through. And uh, it's going to be a fun one. Also, I'll be in Oak Cliff in Dallas at La Privada on the 26th. So nice. you can come and catch me there as well. Uh, yeah, that's all we got. Guys, thanks for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed the episode. If you like what you hear, follow us on the Patreon. Uh, but if you're out there, you know, doing things, be safe, be smart. But above all, don't get caught. Don't get caught. See you next time.